What a beautiful day of music. That's just wonderful. Don't think I've ever heard any better congregational singing than right here at Riverview. Thank you, Zach, Katie, and all the others. It's wonderful. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. And then 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. Matthew 5, 8. And then 1 Timothy 6, 11. While you're looking for that, let me introduce uh, part of our family that's here this morning. This is my son-in-law, Nathan Williams. He's the advertising, publicity, make look good, the Assemblies of God Financial in Springfield, Missouri. Next to him is my daughter, our daughter, Rebecca. She is the fourth grade school teacher at Hickory Hill School. Then next to her is our granddaughter, Lily. Lily is our ballerina. She's our grace and all those things. And next to her is Ian. Ian is our cross-country runner, the uh, student body president. It's an all-American family here. Am I bragging? Am I bragging? <laughs> I, I care to, that, but the most interesting thing of all, that's Lily Ruth, Rebecca Ruth, and Ruth the First. Just in case you're curious how we got that progression going on. We're glad to have them. They drove up this morning and for to spend some time with them. All right, here's what we've done in the Beatitudes so far. We're far enough in, I'm not going to trust my memory, okay? I just trusted my memory at 8 o'clock, and I made it okay, but I thought that's the last time you're going to do that. So I'm going to hold the Beatitudes in my hand and make sure you understand where we are. You have a set of three and then a set of five. The first three come under the heading, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the people that know that they cannot help themselves. They do not have the strength to live the Christian life on their own. Then, because you don't have that strength, it makes you sad. So, blessed are they that mourn. That's the second one. And then third one, because you know you can't do it yourself, because you're sad, you call on the Lord, and He comes into your life and tames your spirit. Remember that word meek means an animal that's been domesticated? So, because you are poor in spirit and you're sorry, now your life is under control, your appetites and your passions. Then the second session, the section, second section, it comes under... Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. See, so, so the first three are in here. My sin, my problems, my weakness. But now the Lord has something beautiful and wonderful for us out there. There's, there's more to the Christian life than just containing myself. There's, there's a life to be received. But what are the traits of that life? What makes that life wonderful? What are they? So you hunger and thirst after it first. You want it really bad. And then the traits are, blessed are the merciful, people who relieve misery, people who are pure in heart, which is today, people who are peacemakers, and people who are persecuted. That's the good thing. We'll get to that later, okay? That's another sermon for another day. So that's where we are. Now today we have a little controversy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Ruthie's going to read the scripture in just a minute. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But the Bible says we cannot see God. It's impossible. We'll come back to that just a little bit, okay? I'd love to leave you hanging. Just hold on right there. Ruthie's going to read two passages, and one tells us we must see God, and the other tells us we can't. So listen real closely. Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Then 1 Timothy 6, 11. This is Paul instructing Timothy. 
1 Timothy 6:11. This is the New Living Translation. <clears throat> but you, Timothy, are a man of God, so run from all these evil things. Pursue righteousness and a godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have confessed so well before many witnesses. And I charge you before God, who gives life to all, and before Christ Jesus, who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate, that you obey this command without wavering. Then no one can find fault with you from now until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. For at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only Almighty God, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. He alone can never die, and he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will. All honor and power to him forever. Amen. Well, there you have it. Jesus said, if you're blessed, if you're in heart, you will see God. Paul says you can't see God. We'll come back to that in just a minute. That's the second half of the sermon. First of all, we start with what the goal is. What is the goal? Blessed are the pure in heart. Heart refers to your innermost self, who you are way down deep. Real Christianity entails not just what you do on the outside, but it goes way down deep into your innermost essence, inside, outside. Being a Christian means everything that you have, all that you are, all that you believe, your whole essence is meant to serve the Lord. So Jesus is saying that heart religion has the priority. Heart religion is the most important type of religion. But Christians have three things that they're always tempted to put in the place of heart religion. Now, they're all three important, but they all come underneath heart religion. But there are reasons that we sometimes, if we're not careful, we twist to where we're doing something else as more important than heart religion. Number one is head religion. You, you know, a lot of people live their whole lives just to gain knowledge, read more of the Scripture, they read more books. They want to learn and learn and learn without realizing they become as calculated and cold as a Pharisee. Some of the meanest people you will ever meet are people who know the Bible really well. For to them, knowledge has become sort of the essence of life. It's become what life is all about. This is especially true in our churches where we believe the Bible. If you are in a church that believes the Bible, when somebody puts the Bible on the pulpit, immediately you're sort of in awe. There's this respect. There's this reverence. And because we so love a book, which is a written text, it is very careful for us to come to the place that we value the written text as much as we value the one it's written for and about and who did it and who wrote it. So the Bible, rather than the means to an end, often becomes an end. And when that happens, we have a real problem. I learned this in seminary. When I got to seminary, I was uh, studying religious books all day, all night, hours upon hours, working on my two degrees, and I worked hard. And I made the mistake of thinking, you know what? Since I'm reading about religion, I don't have to worry about my private time, staying close to the Lord. This will take care of it. And while my brain filled up, my spirit starved. 
It's one of the closest times in my life I ever came to not serving the Lord. Because I let head religion become more important than heart religion. Then some people overemphasize hand religion, what they do. They say the behavior is all that matters. Every once in a while you meet somebody and they say, all I need to obey is the Ten Commandments. Or they say, my daddy taught me the golden rule and that's all I've had to, needed to live by. Well, I, all of us will agree that actions are important. But your actions by themselves, they can spring from the wrong motive. You can do them in a harsh, condescending way. You can become self-righteous. Because you think, well, I'm just doing all the right things. And therefore, you get to the place, really, you don't care about anybody else. You really don't care about the Lord that much. Because the hand religion becomes the obsessive thing. And then, there's the house religion. The church house. Where we learn to go through all the ceremonies and all the rituals and all the music and all the things that we do. And that sort of becomes our religion in and of itself. There are some of you this morning who when you came to church today had to wipe off the dust that's collected on your Bible since last Sunday. Because the church becomes, for many people, this is their religious expression. They have a house religion. They come here, they get filled up, and they go out for the rest of the week, and that takes care of it. And nobody wants to minimize going to church. Jesus went to the synagogue. He was a regular church attender, if I may use that, that symbol. He regularly assembled with God's people. Therefore, we do too. The book of Hebrews says, don't you quit for assembling together. Christians all over the world for 2,000 years always have gone to church. We know that is essential. We don't have to apologize for that. That's what we do. We just have to remember that attendance at the house of God is not as important as pleasing the God of the house. Now, how important is it? Let me tell you how important it is. You know that Judas led the police to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why did he do that? Because he knew the place of prayer, but not the prayer of the place. He'd been with Jesus three years, day and night. He knew where Jesus went to pray. He knew, that, he knew that holy spot in Gethsemane. He knew the place, but he didn't know the prayer. So there you have it. Head religion, hand religion, house religion, all of them important in their own right, but yet they need to come under, they need to coalesce, they need to come together to help us with heart religion because God wants to see in us a pure heart. The Bible is very clear. The Lord looks on the heart. Now, why does the Lord want us to have a pure heart? So, so that when He comes into us, He sees Himself. The, the, the Holy Spirit is a, is a dove, and it's looking for a clean place to come. And so it's looking for a place where it can come and just rest. It's an amazing thought that God, who owns the universe, who fills everything in a way, there are certain ways in which He is looking for a place to stop, just to land. Just where he can sort of rest for a moment. And that's what he has in a pure heart. When there's a pure heart, pure heart he can come. No, there's no competition. Nobody else is trying to steal his affection. Nobody else is trying to turn them away. A pure heart is where he comes as the king, sits on the throne, and is greatly loved, and he feels at rest. 
Now, the great danger, always, is that, is that we will have a divided heart. We, we will have a heart that, that wants to go this way or, or go that way or have an allegiance to something or someone other than God. For believers, a divided heart is always a serious danger. One of the greatest songs ever written, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, we all have loved it. We grew up in church, some of our favorites. It's a wonderful song. It was written after a man had been a Christian only three years. Then he was a Baptist pastor for 30 years after that. And in the song, he puts this line, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, and seal it for thy courts above. That's Robert Robertson's great hymn, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. I, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's the tragedy. Robert Robertson, after 30 years of being a Baptist pastor, fulfilled the very thing he was scared about. He himself went away. He himself wandered. Now, fortunately, before he died, he came back. But it just reminds us all. You can even write one of the greatest hymns ever. And you can still collapse at the end. Paul the Apostle was writing holy writ. Now, folks, you can't get any closer to God than when you're writing holy writ and the Holy Spirit of God is on you. He's writing holy writ and he says, I've got to be careful lest I become shipwreck. Always remember, you are not above any sin. You are capable at the last moment, after 50 years of serving God, it is possible that you would step into sin and fall. This to me has become the Holy Grail now. After all these years of serving the Lord, giving Him my life, I never for one second assume that I shall end strong. Not for one second. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So it is absolutely imperative that we understand what it means to have a pure heart. A heart totally undivided, with nothing else calling our allegiance and our attention. The only way we can have it is for God to do a miracle in us. When I was a younger preacher, I would get to this point, and I would tell you, you ought to do this, 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 this. You're going to have a pure heart. You go to church. You read your Bible. You have friends. Nothing but pure legalism. I look back on those years with just great frustration, telling people what to do. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then wondering why they're struggling. The only way you can have a pure heart is not to do this, 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 and this. The only way to have a pure heart is you fall on your face before God and you say, I am poor in spirit. I cannot do this. I am mourning here. I, blessed are the most the, sorry. You've got to do something in me. Help me. Come control me. Make me meek. Make me tame. Only God can do this. You have to say, the only way that I can be pure is to constantly keep confessing. To keep having God with an ongoing miracle, one of the great dangers of the Christian faith is you'll have some great experience with God. And you'll think that'll hold you for a week. You come to church on Sunday, and you think, oh, that's enough for the week. You have some great experience. You're listening to some song. Oh, that's wonderful. When was the last time you ate a meal? And it held you for one week. The best meal that you ever ate in your life did not hold you for two days. 
the best meal you've ever eaten, you still were hungry the next day. It's the same way with living the Christian life. You need a miracle every hour of every day. You need to be constantly falling down before Him and saying, I cannot do this. I've told you, I've told you before, I'm going to tell, you, I'm going to tell people until I die. The need must be constant. I have never one time in my life that I remember, never one time been on my face before God, enumerating my sins, calling them out, and saying, this is who I am, and I'm so sorry. I've never done that without getting up, and before I put my hand on the doorknob, I can think of another sin I forgot to pray about. This is the real us. This is who we really are. We don't get stronger and get better as we get older. You, you don't somehow finally hit the spot and you're finally there. No, we spend our lives growing, crying, on our faces, pleading. We never get past being poor in spirit, ever. And so if we're going to, have to be pure of heart, we've got to constantly have this cleansing going on. There has to be this burning in us of everything that's wrong inside us. Pascal, uh, Pascal, one of the greatest theologians of the 1600s. I don't agree with everything Pascal said. I don't know anybody that does. Pascal probably didn't agree with everything he said. But anyway, Pascal was a great thinker. And one time he was trying to define the Christian life in one word. It's a great exercise, by the way. I've tried to do it. If you had to describe what the Christian life means to you, what is it in one word, what would you say? Pascal said... If you want to describe Christian in one word, you use the word fire. He said, God burning in you every second, every moment, lighting up your sin, showing what's in the crevices, burning it out, constantly keeping you hot for Him and warm and mindful of Him. So, that's the goal. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, what's the consequence? All right. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And there begins the problem. God cannot be seen by physical eyes because He has no physical form. People see visions of Him. We saw, we saw the best we could ever see the Father in Jesus. Jesus said, He that has seen me hath seen the Father. But, but even he, the Bible says that His flesh was a veil, like the veil that took the holy of holy room where nobody could look in. He said His flesh was like a veil. In other words, that's all of God you can see, but you didn't see the inner essence of God, what He was on the inside. His Godness. You didn't see His essence. Because God cannot be seen with physical eyes. Because He's not physical. My favorite story in this regard is Moses. Exodus 33. The two most neglected chapters in the Old Testament are Exodus 33 and Ezekiel 16. They make nobody's top ten list. I promise you, nobody's. But I would put both of them in a top ten list. It's in Exodus 33 where the people have sinned. And Moses knows Israel's in trouble. So he comes back on the mountain. He's apologizing to God. And God is saying, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Moses, so I won't kill you. I'm just going to send an angel in front of you. That would have been a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus himself. 
I'm just going to send an angel in front of you. I'm going to step back because you keep doing that stuff right in my presence. I'll destroy all of you. And Moses says, now, now Lord, if you're not going with us, we're not going. I love that. <laughs> if, if you're not going, I'm staying right here. And so the Lord has to back up and the Lord says, all right, I will I'll send the angel. We'll come before you. We will stay in your presence. And Moses, knowing that he has reached one of the most important moments in the history of humanity. Becomes romantic with God. Don't ever miss this. Knowing he has a special avenue to God, knowing this is a special moment, he says, I think it's one of the boldest prayers ever uttered, I want to see you. It's like a wedding night. It's a romantic moment between Moses and God. You see, the Bible says that Moses and the Lord had a special relationship. They'd talk to each other. He'd hear God. God would talk to him. And our, our English Bibles say that Moses and God talked face to face. The Hebrew says mouth to mouth. But we don't have that idiom. That doesn't make sense to us. So we, they, they use the phrase face to face. But Moses never saw the essence of God, never saw the innermost being, and so he's in this moment. He knows he may never have this moment again as long as he's so he presses it. And he says, now, may I see you. And God, realizing the importance of the moment and not wanting to crush Moses, he says, now Moses, no one can see me and live. But here's what I'm going to do. There's a crack in the rock over here, a cleft. And I'm going to put you in the cleft. Remember the old, the old song, Hide my soul in the cleft of the rock? That's what he's talking about. Now, Moses, I'm going to put you over here in this crevice, in this little cave. And I'm going to come flying by, and just before I get to the cave, I'm going to put my hand in front of you so that you cannot see me. I'm going to fly by, and at the last second, I'll move my hand, and you'll see the afterglow. You'll see the after effect. You'll see what comes behind me. Now that's what Jesus is talking about here. You shall see God in that, not that you will see His innermost essence, not that you will see His person, but that in your soul, in your heart, you will so love Him and so know Him and so enjoy Him that He is as precious as and as available to you and as present as if you could see Him with your physical eyes. You will enjoy His beauty in heaven with your physical eyes, but until then, you enjoy His beauty with spiritual eyes, where you just know He's there. It's like my sweet Ruthie and me. Um, Ruthie and I can be in the same room, never talk, be totally by ourselves, not looking at each other, and yet I've never been bored in her presence. Never. Even though I'm not looking at her, I'm not seeing her with my eyes, she is there. And that's what God is saying here can happen in our lives. God is saying that you can live with God in such a way that, that you can actually get so close to Him and enjoy Him so much, you can be driving down the road at 70 miles an hour and all of a sudden your mind goes 70 miles an hour to heaven. You can be in some dark hour on your face screaming to God about a sickness, about a loved one, 
And you know there's not going to be any. You know God's not going to grant it. You just know it in your heart. And yet, in that moment, you sense the presence of God. Nothing more beautiful this side of heaven than that moment. The Bible says we live in heavenly places. That means you live in a little heaven on earth in your inner self. And so no matter what we're going through, no matter what the difficulty, we can enjoy Him. You can get so close to God that when you are praying and you are pouring your soul out, your eyes are closed, you're almost afraid to reach out. Because you are afraid you might touch Him. This is not for super saints. This is not for the superheroes. This is not for the legion of superheroes. This is for everyday Christians. When you go into the prayer chamber with a nightmare of an existence, are we just like lost people? Are we just crying out and screaming and that's all we have and God's not granting our requests? Is that all we have? No, what Jesus is saying here, if you are pure in heart, if you're loving me, you will see me. This is the most important part of prayer. Don't ever go into prayer with the number one desire being what you're screaming about. Don't ever let that be the main desire of your life. Don't ever go into prayer asking God to do something. That's the most important thing. Or asking God, this is the most important. No. No, the most important part of prayer is whether God says yes, no, or wait. The most important part of prayer is when you are in prayer that you sense Him there. You know you are in His presence. That's why when I do my prayer time, mathematician by training, I can click it off, man. Click, 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 go through my my prayer folder. Click, 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 be done. And never one second thought about God. Sometimes I need to take my prayer folder and lay it on my chest and just say, God... Was it you and me here? Did I really know you? Did I sense your presence when you go down on your face before God and you're crying and screaming to him before you get up? You ask yourself, God, God, did we do this? Were we together? This is what it means to be a Christian. I get so tired of shallow preaching and shallow talking and shallow stories and shallow books who they almost act as if christianity is something off to the side i've got my job and i got this and i got my recreation i got, my, I got everything else no fooey with that no to be a christian means it's right here every second of your life every breath that you breathe every move that you make everything that you do here right here you're conscious that you're a christ follower You realize you're being watched. You realize you need His miracle power in your life. Right here. That's what it means to be a Christian. All right. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Someday you'll see God face to face. It's a wonderful thought. But in the meantime, you see him in your heart of hearts. It's just a